use of those. So two weeks ago, we left Moses in the middle of a desert, sitting down by a well. And it was probably the most depressing, discouraging moment of his life. We're coming back to that place, and we're finding him in a wilderness or a desert. It is also a mountain region, uh, not far from Egypt, but enough distance separated by the Red Sea. So if you figure you're going from Egypt across the Red Sea, you enter into the Sinai Peninsula. You've heard of Mount Sinai. Uh, you've heard of Mount Horeb. We'll read about Mount Horeb. Sinai and Horeb are really the same place. Horeb is the region of mountains. Sinai, probably the particular mountain that is recognizable to us. And this is where we're finding him. And if you think about him sitting down by this well in the middle of a desolate, abandoned place, all alone, very much alone. He has left the hustle and bustle and success, the educational system, prominence, being a prince of the land, of all of these things, and he is probably feeling like a complete and absolute failure. <clears throat> Everything is lost. This is the end. This is the end of my life. And yet we're going to find it is the beginning. This is really just the beginning of God working to shape Moses to the man he needs to be. And I find this, that when God brings us to a desert experience, that's exactly what he's doing, is bringing us to be able to know him in a personal and a real way. So we call this a personal encounter with Christ, encountering Christ in the wilderness. The most significant event in all of Moses' life of 120 years is right here in chapter 3. And it will change everything about who he is and what he does. So this morning I'd like for us to look at this in two ways. First the scene, the scene of the burning bush. And then the significance of that scene. The scene or the location that we've talked about here is probably something that we're not um, used to, desert, wilderness, mountain. Um, I think back to being away from everything. We love going up to the mountains and um, seeing the stars, a little harder to see when you're down here. Uh, but you can imagine what this might be like. I still remember when we, you know, moved to Wisconsin, up in the very northeast part of Wisconsin. I've been up to the mountains and seen all the stars and Milky Way and that sort of thing. When I got up there, it was so dark <laughs> and it was so quiet. I could hear my heartbeat. It was almost scary. And you look up and you could, you could see, I know I can't see every star, but you felt like you could see the whole sky lit up with stars. And that was a pretty normal evening there. But what was not normal was the northern lights. How many of you have seen the northern lights before? So you probably have to get up north 
ways where it's cold. But that will, that's a showstopper. I mean, you look up and you see it's surreal. It's just, it's unbelievable what you can see across the sky. But this, this scene takes place in the wilderness, in the desert, and on a mountain. All of these are making reference, and this is usually where God is speaking to people. You find this all through the scriptures, out and away, alone, quiet, wilderness, mountain, where he speaks. That's why we love sending kids to camp in the summer. Get, get away from the hustle bustle. Get away from your devices. Get away from your computer. Get away from all the traffic. And he comes to Horeb, uh, Sinai. It's interesting that this place, Sinai or Horeb, we're going to see it in several places. We see it here with Moses encountering Christ. We're going to see it later on when he brings the children of Israel out of Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments, same place. So God is now revealing himself in a personal way to all his people. It is the place that Elijah fled to. If you remember reading the story in 1 Kings 19, and the, Elijah comes off the Mount Carmel experience and, and dives into a fit of depression. He just runs. He, and he says, Lord, end my life. Let my life be over. I'm all done. And um, he is alone. And he's looking for what God is going to say to him. And if you remember that story, it says, you know, he saw the, the wind and the fire, but God wasn't in that, but God was in the still, small voice. And he speaks to Elijah, the same place. And so God will speak to us in that still, small voice in a quiet, alone, desert place. Now, when God brings you and God brings me to the desert, I won't ask how many of you have been in a desert experience. This isn't the end. This is the beginning of God revealing himself to you. He has a purpose in this. The time frame is interesting. Now, Moses lives 120 years. That's a long time. Most of us are not going to live that long. There are really three sections of his life. This burning bush experience comes when he is 80 years old. 80. So he had 40 years just kind of riding high in Egypt. He's the prince. He's the general. He defeated the Ethiopian army. He has all the treasures of Egypt. Forty years. He comes to the well, and now for the next 40 years, you say, what's his, what's his life like? He is a husband. He is a father. He is a shepherd. Well, that doesn't sound too exciting. <laughs> a husband, a father, and a shepherd. And you think God is preparing him to lead three million people out of Egypt. You see, when he left Egypt, he had all the tools, he had all the education, he had all the leadership, he had all the the, the power. God doesn't need that. God needs a broken 
person, humble, dependent, and knows how to be a shepherd. Remember we talked what a shepherd does? He cares for the sheep. Sheep, the Egyptians despised shepherds. Lowly, caring for the sheep, leading the sheep, taking them to water, protecting them from beasts, finding good pasture for them to eat, making sure they're all there. <laughs> and I'm sure the flock wasn't huge. Husband, father, shepherd for 40 years. A life of quietness, obscurity, isolation, and I put down here monotony. So what are you going to do today, Moses? Well, <laughs> that's what I do. Husband, father, shepherd. Get up the next day. What are you going to do today? Husband, father, shepherd. It was a nomadic life, living in tents. There wasn't a lot to see. Over going to a new town today. I mean, you're in the desert and you move around in the desert. You're finding vegetation. You're finding water. And what he sees is uncommon. A common bush, and maybe not too uncommon, it's on fire, and yet it's not consumed. An ordinary bush in flames, but it keeps burning. And he pulls aside to go and investigate the site. And what he hears is the voice of God. He hears the voice of God. He asks a question at the end of this section. God speaks to him. He says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. He talks about what he wants to do. And then Moses responds by this. Who am I? Who am I? I, I think this is probably one of the most significant parts of this whole thing because this is the way we think. Who am I? Who am I? I got news for you, folks. It's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you. It's about God. Because God reveals to him with this name that he's never heard before, I am. It's who God is. Because everything you are flows from who God is. Don't ever forget that. You can never understand who you are or what you're to do until you understand who God is and what he's doing. And this, this is the event. This is, this is what is happening. So he pulls aside. He sees this. He, he starts to investigate. The Lord says, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. And then he tells him what he wants to do. Moses' response who am I? So we move from the scene of the encounter with Christ in the wilderness. And I want us to look at the significance of it because to me this is so powerful. Who is this? Who is this speaking out of the flaming bush that's not being consumed? It's in it, and it says the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now, it could mean a number of things. And uh, as we say, you want to find out what it meant, what it means, before you say what it means to me. <laughs> uh, because you can't have a right application if you don't have a right interpretation of this text. An angel of the Lord. 
many times is what we call a theophany or a, an appearance of God. Well, what does God look like? God is a spirit. Read that in John 4. So we that worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. So God, we do not see. But it could be a, an image or a picture or an event of God communicating himself, a presence. Or it could be a Christophany, an appearance of Christ himself. Now some people say, well, that's a stretch. How do you... How do you see that that's actually Jesus there? And I, I know there's some debate on this, but I think the more you read through the scripture, you're going to find this is Christ. You get into Hebrews and you talk about uh, Moses seeing Christ because Christ is the face of God. God is spirit and Christ is the face of God. Here's what's interesting. To this point, Moses is 80. Okay? When he dies at 120, it says he is still strong and his strength has not abated. So it's like he's 120 and he is doing well. <laughs> so at 80, he has this experience. 40 years doing fantastic I mean, riding the ladder of success, 40 years, a shepherd. He has never really known God. He's known about God. He hasn't known God. Here he comes to know God. I want to stop here for just a moment. There's so many people in this world who know all about God, but they don't know him. They don't know him. They can tell you his names. They can quote the books of the Bible. They can tell you verses. They can tell you all of the systematic theology, the biblical theology. They can even read Greek and Hebrew. They know all about God. Your kids can grow up and know all about God and not know him personally. There is a difference. You know, in the news, it's all about the queen. I don't know what, to what degree you follow that, but I know that in many of the countries in the Commonwealth, they'll follow every part of this. You learn about that culture. You learn about their etiquette. Boy, I'd be afraid to move. You go over there, be afraid to do anything. It's not appropriate, not proper. But, you know, you, you learn about the queen. You can learn all about the queen. I'm sure people do, and not know her personally. You see, what God desired when he created you, when God created me, was that we might enjoy a personal relationship with him. And he makes that possible. But at this point, and I started to realize, I started going back, okay, I got, I'm going back through all the scriptures. Where do I find out that God has, I mean, Moses has a personal relationship with God. All the time growing up in Egypt, 40 years, I don't, don't see, I mean, he, he's heard about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and your fathers. He knows about that because God refers, I am the God of your fathers. <laughs> so he knows about that. 
He's heard about that. He's been taught about that. All the 40 years he's spent in the desert being a shepherd has not had a personal, relational encounter with Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. So darkness, desert, brings light into the darkness the glory of God is that light, and it is shown to us in the face of Christ. This is how we come to know God personally. It is through Christ. Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance, Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So this bush is burning, it's on fire, it's not consumed. I also feel this is a picture of Christ. Something about that that normally fire would consume a bush. But this is not consumed. As is Christ is perfect in all that he is. So we're going to get introduced to a new name for God. Now I know that sometimes you say, all oh, those names of God. <laughs> okay, this is the most significant this is different. As we were reading through the earlier text, and I, I marked five times, um, he is talking, you know, God is speaking to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father, your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. So God's mentioned five times there. It's Elohim. That's the name for God. We also begin verse 7, following that says, And then the Lord said to him, that is the word Adonai. The new name we're going to be introduced to is Jehovah. Jehovah, the personal relational God. And it's, 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 it's an amazing name. It's a, what we call a tetragrammaton. Now, I know, you, I know you're going to want to memorize this. <laughs> A tetragrammaton. So four letters. Of course, Hebrew is written um, the opposite way. You say, it's a, we're, we probably, they would say to us, we're, we're the opposite way. But you're, you're writing from right to left. So Y-H-W-H. -H. And the Jews would even, they would never speak that. They would never say Jehovah. They would never say Yahweh. Yah they fill in with syllables, these four consonants, but they would never say it. When the scribes, every time they would come to a place where it says YHWH, they would have a new pen. They'd take a, a whole new pen, or what they'd have is a quill, and write that letter, throw it away. Get a new one, write the next letter. Every time they came to that, because they had such reverence for that name. Here's what it means. It means to be. To be. This is the name of God that means the self-existent one. The self-existent one. So to be could say to be, 
Everything that I was, everything that I am, everything that I will be. I am that I am. So this is how he introduces himself to Moses. I am that I am. So when we, we take this and go to the New Testament, Jesus is speaking. He calls himself the I am. This is where it comes from. Jesus is Jehovah. Now, this is amazing. So God is explaining to Moses who he is, the self-existent one. He was, he is, he always will be. And then he describes, I think, four characteristics. We could probably expand a lot of different ones, but four that are just pronounced in this event. The encounter with Christ. The first thing we are impressed with is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And can I tell you that, that today in the modern American church, we play that down. God is holy. And we see that when he says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. I believe it is the foremost attribute of God. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So when we say holy, we mean true and perfect, without flaw, without fault. It is brilliant. It is glorious. It is magnificent. He is transcendent. He dwells in unapproachable light, and no sinful being can survive in his presence. God is holy, and he is unchangeable in his holiness. We are sinners. And God, don't ever forget this, God does not loosen up his holiness to have a relationship with you. That's not the way it works. He doesn't become unholy, maybe a little soiled, just to, to try to fit in. He dwells in unapproachable light. And you're going to see this through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, that God is a holy God, perfect and pure and transcendent. And we, if we are to come into his presence, we must become holy. You feel the tension there? <laughs> I mean, it's not God to become unholy. If we're to have a relationship with him, we must become holy. So, one, God is holy. Two, God is self-existent. That's in his name. A new name, the I Am, the Jehovah. The self-existent one. I am that I am. This is what Jesus also expressed. Let me read out of John chapter 8 because this is, this is the encounter that Christ had with the Pharisees. You say, why did the, the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, the Sadducees, why did they crucify him? Because of what I'm going to read. I'm going to read this and they're going to crucify him. 
In John 8, verse 53, it says, and, and the Pharisees are asking Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you hear that? Before Abraham was, I am. And he uses the word that no one would use. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went to the temple. So his claim to be God was found in that statement. He is claiming to be Jehovah. I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And he goes on. You say, well, hey, boy, he's making it kind of dangerous for himself. <laughs> because he goes on in the Gospel of John to say in, in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the door. Also in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And then in, in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally in John 15, I am the true vine. Every one of those times he's saying, I am the self-existent one. I am Jehovah. So that's why when I go back to Exodus 3, and this is the best way to read the Old Testament, after you read the New Testament, you're seeing that he is using the exact same language as God in this burning bush saying, I am. This is, this is who you are to communicate to the people that I am. The self-existent one, the personal one, the one you can know. So God's holy God is self-existent. And number three, God is good. Well, I don't see that in the Old Testament. I see that more in the New Testament. I don't see that in the Old Testament. Well, I would say, what are you reading? Because, <laughs> I mean, you see the goodness of God, the mercy, the kindness, the patience, the forgiveness of God all through the Old Testament. Even in this situation, here's what he says in this conversation with Moses. I have seen the affliction of my people. So he sees, he calls them my people. I have seen their affliction. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. Who came down to deliver them? In the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. And then he says, I will bring them to a good land, one flowing with milk and honey. 
So everything about the I am is personal relationship, and it is about redemption. Remember we talked about that, really the themes of this face-to-face? Face-to-face means that Moses now will begin a relationship with God through the person of Christ. As I said, Moses has known all about God up to this point. He's known about God. He's been taught about God. He's probably talked to God, (laughs) but he hasn't known him until this point. And he will come in this encounter face to face. God calls him by name, Moses, and in verse 12 he says, I will be with you. Isn't that amazing? This is, this is where we see now personal, daily walk, relationship with God through Christ. I will be with you. And you're going to see it. He says, I've sent you, I'll be with you, and I will bring the, my people out of Egypt, and you will serve me on this mountain. That's how you're going to know. Because I'm with you, I'm going to go with you, I'm going to bring the people out, and you're going to come and serve me, worship me on this very mountain. Because God's desire in this desert experience is not just bringing Moses to the desert to get to know him. He's bringing all three million people to the desert. Can you imagine trying to take care of three million people in the desert? If you had a whole city structure, it might be a little easier. But he is the self-existent one, self-sufficient. You ever think about this, that God doesn't need anything? I hear preachers sometimes say, you know what, folks? God needs you to get out there and tell people about Jesus. God needs you to pray. God needs you to obey. God needs you to... Folks, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. He's the self-existent one. Now, he wants you to love him. He wants you to obey him. He desires for you to fellowship with him. But God's not up there saying, oh, I can't get this done without you guys. He has all power to accomplish his will. So God, in his sovereignty, brings Moses to the wilderness. 40 years of wilderness. And Moses comes to know God personally. And he learns to lead like a shepherd. So that's Moses, that's Israel, and that's you. I cannot remember one desert experience that I enjoyed. Usually it's like, okay, God, what's, what's up? <laughs> I was really busy doing a lot of good stuff for you. <laughs> I was getting things done. <clears throat> Settles you down, quiets you. Helps you realize that he doesn't need you, but you need him. You need him. 
And in his loving kindness and his mercy, he brings you to relationship through Christ. So I don't know what experiences you're going through presently, but I think that God uses these consistently to draw us into closer encounter with Christ. So takeaway today, I just, in conclusion, um, how do we respond to that? How, how do we respond to this story, this account? In two ways. First one is awe. Awe. Stand in awe at the burning bush and consider what this means. I don't think we have a lot of awe today of God. It's more like he's our back-slapping buddy. Now, he is personal and relational, but we've lost our sense of awe that he is holy, that he is self-existent, that he is good, and he is person, personable. Be in awe. And the way that we come into awe of God is in the face of Christ. And the way that we see the face of Christ is through his word. So when I read his word, I see his face. And I stand in awe. And the second response is worship. Worship. I'm in awe of who he is. And I worship him. And worship, to me, the fullness of praise, thanksgiving, confession of my sins, belief in what he calls me to believe, obedience to what he calls me to do, service in what he asks me to do. My whole life, my whole entire life responds, yes, yes. That's true worship. When all that I am responds rightly to all that he is. And there is no better life than that. You know, we all want to kind of take matters into our own hands. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to go make this happen. I'm going to do this. And, and God, sometimes he'll let you go for 40 years. But eventually, he'll bring you to the desert. And the purpose is to know him. How much of your Christianity, I just want to ask you this, how much of your Christianity is knowing about God? And how much of it is really knowing him relationally? My prayer for this church is that we might enjoy an intimate, meaningful relationship with Christ and that every day, all we do is respond rightly to that. That's the best life. That's the best life possible. From this point on, everything changes for Moses. Thank God for your desert. Father, it's hard for us to praise you in the wilderness. We feel abandoned, alone, hopeless, failures, and yet, here it is that we come to know you. And so I pray whatever experience you bring us to and through, we might have that same 
relationship as Moses experienced. He is the man who knew God face to face. Thank you for making that possible through the shed blood of Christ for his intervention to forgive our sins, to give us eternal life as we believe. And we give you praise and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.